Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Nikola Biliskov, who's a PhD student at the National Institute for Strategic Studies in Ukraine, and Nadia Siskura, who is an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, and holds an advisory role at Chatham House, also in the United Kingdom. Nikola and Natya were participants in CSIS's Understanding the Russian Military Today, a five-day professional development program that explores the elements of Russian military power, including its composition, its prospects, social and historical foundations, doctrine, and current operations. And as a final exercise, we asked a select group of participants to develop a short independent research paper that explored several major themes. And both uh, Nicola and Natia participated and wrote a wonderful research paper. Nicola's dissected Russia's military buildup near Ukraine's borders, while Natia focused on Russia's hybrid aggression and a variety of influence tools used in Georgia. And of course, these papers inspired this episode as we delve deeper into effectiveness and the shortcomings of Russia's hard and soft power in Ukraine and in Georgia. So uh, we welcome you and uh, let's get started. Again, it is so great uh, to have Natya and Nicola here with us. What an important opportunity. Uh, We have so many anniversaries that have and will be taking place. We just passed the mile marker of the 13th anniversary of the Russian invasion of Georgia on August the 8th. Uh, And uh, of course, a very sobering anniversary. We also just very recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence, uh, something that is a a, a real moment to consider uh, how far Ukraine has come, how far it needs to go. And then the other anniversary we're preparing for, although the Kremlin is not preparing for it, I'm sure, it's the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which will happen at the end of this year. So really important anniversaries. We think about occupation and we think about independence. And in some ways, This is really about uh, the tale of two Russian occupations. It's occupation of Georgia, 20% of Georgian territory is, you know, tragically fully integrated nearly into the Russian Federation, 7% of of Ukrainian territory, Crimea and and Donbass is not controlled by Ukrainian authorities. So what we thought we'd do is sort of dive a little more deeply into this uh, conversation, this tale of two occupations. And we're basing this conversation on excellent papers that uh, both uh, Natya and Nicola produced uh, for, for CSIS, which we commend to you. But uh, perhaps let me start, Natya, with you and, and help us understand what were Russia's objectives uh, as Russian uh, military forces crossed into Georgian territory in August of 2008, and their posture over the last 13 years, which we'll talk about in, in greater detail, but what, what are Russia's objectives in this 
in this continued occupation. First of all, thank you so much, Heather, for inviting me. It is a great pleasure to take part in the Russian Roulette podcast and discuss Russian influence in Georgia as well as Russia's malign activities. You have rightly pointed out that it has been 13 years since the August War of 2008 when our Russian military forces launched a full-scale land, air um, and sea offensive against, against Georgia, which resulted in the displacement of over 150,000 citizens and the occupation of 20% of Georgia's territories. The Kremlin continuously legitimizes its actions by claiming that it was Georgia that started the war, while it had a humanitarian role by protecting innocent civilians. Yet the preparation uh, for the 2008 military offensive from the Russian side started long before the August War of 2008. And the reason for Russia's hostile attitude towards Georgia was due to the Kremlin's inability to deal with with Georgia's pro-Western aspirations and foreign policy direction. Occupation of Georgian territories, borderization are one way for the Kremlin to to have a leverage over Georgia, causing major security threats for the country by almost taking these territories, Abkhazia and the so-called South Ossetia, the Tsinvali region, as hostages. Putin's primary goal is to prevent countries like Georgia and Ukraine that have chosen a pro-democratic, pro-Western stance to become integrated into uh, the European Union and uh, Euro-Atlantic space and escape the so-called Russia's sphere of influence. Uh, Russia sees these territories as its backyard, enabling the Kremlin to intervene both militarily and by by using unconventional means. By doing so, Putin wants to reassert its influence in the post-Soviet space and prevent the pro-democracy wave spreading in its neighborhood, because the success of the democracy in Georgia would serve as a direct contradiction to Russia's authoritarian regime. So Russia's main strategic goal with regards to Georgia is to keep Tbilisi out of the Western space, as well as to keep NATO out of the region. Broadly speaking, the war was primarily about the ideological struggle between Russia and the West. The Kremlin felt that the Western interests were strengthening in the region, while the success of the Georgia's pro-Western foreign policy direction would have meant the ultimate success of the democratization and the westernization in the region. It is not without a reason that the Kremlin has despised and feared the colored revolution and portrayed them as the US orchestrated projects with ultimate aim to weaken the Russian leverage over the post-Soviet space. While on the other hand, fearing its snowballing effects that could eventually lead ordinary Russians to question the system that they currently have, leading them to demand transparent democratic institutions free media, freedom of expression, and the rights that citizens living in the liberal democracies usually enjoy. So Nadia, thank you. I mean, that, that's, uh, that gives us a really complete picture. And, you know, in many ways, uh, many of the explanations uh, in the August 2008 uh, invasion of Georgia, it was based on the 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, where Ukraine and Georgia were offered uh, eventual membership into NATO, highly controversial um, decision, but without a pathway uh, in order to do that. So many analysts said, well, you know, Russia took those steps because NATO was coming close. But Nikola, I want to turn to you because in 2013, 
Ukraine wasn't getting close to NATO. In fact, its constitution required neutrality at that moment. It was simply seeking to join an association agreement with the European Union, a trade relationship. But that, so it wasn't NATO, it was about NATO membership. In 2013, it was about the European Union. So, and then of course, uh, the events that came forward in the Maidan, change of Ukrainian leadership, and then the events in the annexation of Crimea and the support of Russian separatists in, in Donbass. So for Ukraine, what are Russia's uh, objectives in the occupation of Ukrainian territory? First, thank you very much for inviting and having us, and thank you for this uh, good introducing question, because if you look at the Russian narratives they are spreading there, uh, how they justify their aggressive acts against Ukraine, occupation of Crimea, undeclared war in Donbass, they specifically cite in its uh, NATO threat. But uh, if you look at the events, how they really progressed, it was uh, 180% the opposite way. Yes, you are right. In 2010, when Viktor Yanukovych came to power, he declared non-aligned status. It was put into separate law, not in the constitution itself, but in the separate law. And Ukraine strictly observed this uh, non-aligned status. Yes, we refused to join collective uh, security treaty organization, but we also observed this uh, non-aligned status uh, just having partnership with NATO. But on the other hand, even Viktor Yanukovych, with all his pro-Russian sentiments, uh, he couldn't um, disagree with the fact that most Ukrainians, the majority of Ukrainians, they want also to have this strength in relations with European Union through free trade agreement and association agreement. And Viktor Yanukovych also pursued these uh, two tracks. We can discuss what his drivers in the end. Maybe he just want to, to get who can provide him with more money and funds, whether it's Russia or, or the West. But in the end, yes, we were just pursuing uh, association agreement and free trade agreement. And uh, Russia perceived it as a threat to not only uh, Ukrainian NATO integration, which was not an agenda in 2016, but also Ukraine's uh, European integration, because it's also a kind of uh, the way how Ukraine uh, can get out from the Russian influence, uh, possible Russia sphere of influence, because we need to remember that Russia also in a parallel wanted to create its own integration entities like uh, Customs Union, like Eurasia, Economic Union. So uh, when Viktor Yanukovych refused in the end under intimidation, under blackmail of Russia to sign free trade agreement and association agreement to have Maidan, which rightly claim you need to pursue what you declare uh, as it is legitimate interest of Ukrainian people. And when in the end uh, Maidan prevailed and Viktor Yanukovych fled, I think it was very, very negatively perceived in Kremlin. So the situation was getting out of control and they need to do something. So uh, experts in EU, in America, they all predicted that Russia will react negatively to this or that extent. But uh, nobody could predict that uh, it, it will do what it would do what it did, basically. So they occupied Crimea and they started the war in Donbass. And only in December 2014, so after Crimea was occupied, after we have uh, this uh, summer fight, inactive fighting in Donbass, when we have tragedy of Ilovaevsk when uh, people were encircled and then just destroyed Ukrainian people. And only then, in December 2013, yes, Ukrainian parliament, uh, it, uh, it decided to take this uh, step to disavow this uh, non-alignment status. 
because uh, uh, everybody saw that uh, it, it didn't produce any added value for Ukraine, no more. So basically it uh, happened not in the way Russia is, is saying that NATO was an agenda at the beginning of 2013. It happened right as a result of the Russian aggression. So Russia created this uh, sense of deep insecurity and it is increasing basically this sense of deep insecurity because now we have almost 90,000 troops all along Ukrainian borders. So, and Russia is practicing all-out war with Ukraine. So they are creating and they are perpetuating this deep sense of security and that's why naturally Ukraine want to have security, Ukraine want to have NATO, NATO membership as the only solid guarantee for its security. So the baseline is that the Russia is the one who has to blame itself why Ukraine want to join NATO. Well, thank you so much, Bikola. I mean, and to me, again, the Russian objectives, keeping NATO, the European Union, the West away, out of Ukraine and Georgia, making sure that Ukraine and Georgia are not functioning democracies, because that would send a message to the Russian people that they too could have a different system. The costs of that, though, for the Georgian and Ukrainian people are extraordinary. That, that to me is, is uh, something that I, I still uh, grapple with, but you're both right. In some ways, the, the costs are high. Russia has been somewhat successful in, in trying to influence this, but at the same time, it's backfired spectacularly. You have much stronger anti-Russian sentiment in both countries. You have the Western track continues to be the most popular. And in some ways, despite the politics within Georgia, within Ukraine, there is still a strong appetite to reform. So it, it's such an extraordinary combination of both success and, and complete failure. Let me move to what is it like inside these occupied territories? And for me, it's also so the diplomacy of this occupation. Because both after the Georgian conflict and, I mean, again, these conflicts are ongoing. Let me just say they are ongoing conflicts. They have not stopped, to be clear about that. But, you know, after the immediate violence in, in, in Georgia, there was a ceasefire agreement negotiated by former French President Nicolas Sarkozy, of which nothing in that ceasefire agreement has ever been really implemented. The same you have in Ukraine. Uh, We have these uh, agreements, the line of contact. You have monitors on both, but there are still deaths. Uh, There are, you know, the casualties continue to mount in Ukraine. So we see that even ceasefires, diplomatic processes don't help. But as this time process moves on, you, you still have Russia exerting its influence. So Nadia, tell us about this borderization meaning that, you know, we don't talk about conflict in Georgia. We say there's a ceasefire, there's an ongoing diplomatic process. Help us understand what Russia is doing in these territories. And then, Nicola, I'm going to ask the same thing to you. Like, what is happening inside uh, Donbass, in Luhansk, in Donetsk, in Crimea? How is Russia exerting its influence in the occupied territories? Nadia, over to you first. 
Thank you so much for a fantastic question. As you mentioned, uh, Russia is using different tools to undermine Georgia's sovereignty, uh, but borderization is definitely one of the key national security threats for Georgia. Since 2008, the Kremlin has continued the militarization of the Tsrin Valley region and Abkhazia by stationing thousands of Russian troops on, in both regions. In March 2017, for, for instance, the de facto armed forces of the Tsrin Valley region were fully integrated into the Russian military. The Kremlin furthermore aims to increase the capabilities of the de facto forces by conducting military exercises on the ground. According to the Georgian State Security Service, for example, in 2020, more than um, 120 exercises were held on the six, uh, on the seventh sense uh, force uh, military bases of the Russia's southern uh, military district. At the same time, uh, Russia is advancing its borderization policy by also attempting to use it, it as a leverage over Tbilisi. The creeping occupation, as we call it, has taken place in areas near the main uh, Georgian East-West West Highway and critical infrastructure such as pipelines that transit oil and natural gas from Caspian Basin to the Western markets. The most notable example is a segment of the BP-operated Bakusubsa pipeline, which was placed inside the Russian occupation territory due to the borderization. After the war went ahead, by increasing its attempts towards the annexation of uh, uh, Georgia's um, occupied territories by signing the so-called integration treaties with the Tsrin Valley region and Abkhazia, um, Russia tries to increase its presence on Georgia's uh, territories. And uh, Russia also pushed the creation of a common security and defense space and implemented a specified process for Abkhazians and ethnic Ossetians to receive Russian passports. Furthermore, the Kremlin-backed forces have systematically kidnapped and, uh, and illegally detained Georgian citizens. In 2020, for example, around uh, 64 citizens were illegally detained. Um, although most of the detained citizens are released in exchange of paying a fine, there have been uh, cases when innocent citizens have been killed by the Kremlin-backed de facto forces. There have been cases when uh, one day people have woken up in a new reality by seeing their homes being absorbed by the Kremlin-backed de facto forces. To give you just a real-life example, a few months ago, a Georgian citizen and the symbol of the Russian occupation died at the age of 88. During his life, he became known for most Georgians and foreigners as a true face of the struggle against Russian occupation. He lived in the village of Khurvaleti and became a victim of borderization when in uh, 2011, Russian occupied forces installed a barbed wire in his household, cutting his village into two. As a re result, um, a part of his household found itself on the territory of the so-called South Ossetia, and another part remained on the territory controlled by the Georgian government. He has been offered the so-called citizenship of the so-called South Ossetia numerous times. However, he kept on fiercely rejecting to take the offer and uh, has been
been living under the constant Russian threat, while being even detained a number of times for illegally crossing the so-called border. This is just a real-life example. This is just one example of how the Russian occupation affects innocent citizens on a daily basis. Uh, Thus, borderization further divides the families and harms the humanitarian situation on the ground by constantly violating the human rights. As you pointed out, Russia, um, even um, after the signing of the ceasefire 6.6 ceasefire agreement, Russia constantly violates the agreement and the European Court of Human Rights uh, has also recognized the fact that uh, Russia does not abide to the agreement which was uh, mediated by then uh, the French uh, President Nicolas Sarkozy. Uh, thus, uh, this, is a, this is a real challenge for the Georgian authorities and for, for, for the country itself, for the state, because uh, Georgia is committed to the, uh, to the uh, peaceful resolution of the conflict, while Russia keeps pushing its borderization policy and keeps putting uh, tremendous pressure on, on Georgia. It seems to me, Nicola, that there's sort of a couple of constants here. Russia uh, is not a party, uh, does not believe it's a party to this conflict, although it has effective control uh, over those parties. Uh, it seeks to pass, hand out passports, so changing the citizenship of the citizens living in the occupied territories. And there is a huge military component to this, whether there are bases, whether it's training the separatists, uh, or sort of that integrate that military integration. Are there other factors that you've observed uh, in in brain occupied territories that give us other examples of Russian influence within the territories? First of all, I want to start with the idea that yes, there are similarities, broad similarities, a huge emphasis on the military factor, but there are differences, of course, if we compare. Uh, Georgia and Ukraine case, uh, they are in detail, of course, but there are differences, because if you if you take Georgia case, uh, it's uh, two entities, the Russia recognize their independence. Yes, uh, de facto, they are under total Russian control, but uh, still Russia, at least uh, officially, it, do- it doesn't um, incorporate them in their territory. In case of uh, Ukraine, we have two different cases. First, the case of Crimea. Uh, when Russia made the decision to incorporate uh, Crimea as a part of its territory. And on the other hand, we have a Donbass, where, where Russia doesn't recognize its presence at all, but we all understand that it's under de facto Russian control. And uh, the other big difference is that in Donbass, we have this low-level conflict. So in Donbass, uh, still uh, guns are uh, speaking, yes, not at the level of 2014 or 15, but still they are speaking and they are claiming the lives of Ukrainians, uh, on not, not on a daily basis, but uh, we are losing our soldiers, a couple of them every, every month due to the sniper fire or to the use of uh, tube artillery, mortars and so on. So there is a big difference. Uh, luckily in Georgia there is uh, no active fighting at all. In case of Ukraine, Russia is using active fighting in Donbass as a kind of leverage because any Ukrainian president, be it Poroshenko, Zelensky or any future Ukrainian president be under constant pressure on parts of citizens, please do something to reduce the level of violence and to reduce to the zero the number of victims we have. So it's a kind of a constant uh, pressure 
been applied to uh, Ukrainian uh, authorities, first of all. Yes, uh, in Donbass we also have uh, the process of passportization and more than 500,000 were already issued. But as for me, uh, when Russia started this process back in spring 2019, it was in direct recognition that their attempts to incorporate parts of Donbass on their terms into Ukrainian territory, they basically failed. So they need to create uh, some other way to satisfy some basic needs of the people. So they start issuing these passports. So, of course, it's a kind of leverage also over Ukraine because they may, may now legitimize your another round of aggression by the clause we are protecting the Russian citizens. But also, as for me, it's a kind of indirect uh, recognition that all their attempts, despite all their pressure, for Ukraine to uh, realize Minsk agreement as Russia wants, it, it failed basically. So they, there is no other option than to provide passports or to uh, de facto incorporate parts of the Donbass into the Russian economy because now ruble is the main currency, is the occupied territories and a lot of uh, people uh, in Donbass, they go uh, looking for jobs to Russia, not to Ukraine, but to Russia. But in case of uh, Crimea, uh, the situation is a bit different despite the fact that we have these instances of a constant prosecution of Crimean Tatars, alas, we have another round of the prosecution done recently at the end of the August and the beginning of September. Uh, a lot of uh, members of Majlis, it's uh, the organ representing Crimean Tatars, they were detained. So we have this uh, kind of a prosecution, but first of all, Crimea is also used as a kind of leverage uh, and a kind of a pressure instrument over Ukraine, but in case of the uh, free passage on the seas. So Russia is militarizing Crimea, Russia is blocking Ukrainian access to the Sea of Azov, and also it's uh, demonstrating its potential to block also access to the Black Sea ports, because Ukraine uh, hugely depends on the Black Sea ports uh, for its export. Uh, through Black Sea ports we export annually more than 120 million tons of different products like uh, agriculture, minerals, chemicals and so on. And so they are also threatening the passage uh, through the Black Sea, and it's also kind of uh, a leverage over Ukraine. And finally, again, I just want to draw uh, attention to the fact that constantly now we have more than, now even more than uh, 30 battalion tactical groups. It's one-fifth of all Russian battalion tactical groups that are concentrated near Ukrainian uh, border. They are constantly threatening Ukraine, and they also kind of... Uh, instrument in this exhaustion strategy, I would say, uh, Russia is applying because Ukraine have to spend a lot of money, a lot of funds on its security and defense. We spend almost 6% of GDP and every fifth grievance of our budget on defense and security. So it's also a kind of instrument in, in this general exhaustion strategy being applied by Russia. So occupied territories, Donbass, Crimea, and all along our mutual border, it's a uh, huge leverage Russia is applying to make Ukrainian authorities to implement Minsk agreements as they want and also to exhaust Ukrainian economy and also of course to intimidate EU and NATO and to make them to be not interested in having relations, deepening relations with Ukraine in the course of the integration both to EU and NATO. Yeah, I mean, what you're both describing, I mean, I agree some of those, there's obviously there's different intensification in, in areas. It, it's not, uh, it's tailor-made to the situation, but it's just this, it's this, ex I love the exhaustion strategy. 
because it's, it's also designed to exhaust the West, to lose interest, to be so frustrated that can't resolve it while Russia is continuing to seize and to grip and to uh, exert its influence, whether it's you know, abducting Georgian citizens, pushing that border out, whether it's you know, the hot phase of pressuring the military encirclement potentially of, of Ukraine, cutting it off of access to Black Sea. I mean, these are really, really powerful tools. Let me turn, if I may, to a third area where I see some similarities uh, in how the Kremlin is exerting its influence in Georgia and Ukraine, and that is the role of the, the Orthodox Church. And, and this is another, again, deep division between the West and the views of the um, traditional faithful. This is not to imply everyone has an absolute right for their, their faith and their belief and we respect and hold that dear. But this is a different type of thing. This is really using those instruments to increase that gap, the decadence of the West, the social agenda of the West, and clash with the values of Russian and Orthodox world. Natya, could you help us understand very briefly how the role of the Russian Orthodox Church has been used within Georgia? And then, Nikola, you're going to, in a very short, succinct way, have to describe in some ways Ukraine separated itself from the Russian Orthodox Church and the Patriarch and what that has meant for, for Ukraine. But, Natya, let me turn to you and how you see this very quickly evolving within Georgia. It's making headlines. That's the, it's become very powerful. Indeed, the religion, the shared past, values, traditions, these are very powerful tools within the Kremlin's arsenal. The Kremlin has long been cultivating the idea that uh, the values, the uh, Orthodox Christianity, uh, these are what, uh, what is common between Russia and Georgia. And these make Georgia and Russia ideologically close to each other. At the same time, the Western values have been portrayed as inherently incomplete compatible to what the Orthodox Christianity stands for. Um, what the Kremlin does is to take advantage of vulnerabilities and use them to achieve its goals. In this case, religion and traditional values are one of the most sensitive issues in Georgia. As seen by the recent event, it is, events, it is clear that Russia is still able to further divide and radicalize Georgian society by using such vulnerable topics. In fact, quite a large number of citizens uh, still share traditional values, which in most cases makes them quite quite favorable target of the Russian propaganda and disinformation. Usually, the Kremlin sympathizers portray the Western intentions as hostile towards Georgian traditions, wanting to impose uh, tolerance to homosexuality and erase the traditional family values. Uh, the recent events of uh, 5th and 6th of July uh, this year, uh, when ultra-nationalist pro-Russian groups attacked journalists in the middle of the city, Tbilisi, and used violence while protesting uh, the Pride March, which was eventually cancelled due to the violent actions, sheds light on how threatening the weaponization of religion and shared values uh, can be. Um, at the same time, I thought it was quite interesting 
interesting that actually uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, claimed that Moscow is ready to restore normal neighborly relations with Georgia if it wants and provided that Tbilisi does not play the Russian card to save its Western patronage. I thought that the timing of this statement was quite interesting and hardly a coincidence. Georgia is currently facing turbulent times politically. Russia is using this opportunity to test the ground. At the same time, uh, Russia still occupies 20% of Georgian territories and the creeping occupation, the borderization are still ongoing. I think it is impossible to even um, think about the normalization of relations. In fact, this has not been the first instance when the Kremlin proposed a similar deal following the anti-Kremlin protests in Tbilisi in 2019, Russian diplomats said uh, that Russia has considered granting Georgia visa-free travel but decided to hold back uh, the possibility after not receiving any kind of apology. This is the kind of leverage that Russia is using every single time. And Russia is using this kind of method, of course, in conjunction with economic leverage, with cyber operations, with disinformation campaigns that are all aiming to to, uh, make it look like the West does not care about Georgia and the NATO membership aspirations are uh, very distant. Um, The Kremlin propaganda aims to change public opinion regarding NATO and the West and portray Russia as the only cultural, religious and value-based true ally for Georgia. With this regard, Russian disinformation has had limited success due to the massive public support towards the West. As you know, the overwhelming majority of the Georgian population, almost 80% of the population, supports Georgia's membership into NATO and Georgia's membership into the European Union. Yet this does not downgrade at all the damage that the Russian propaganda, anti-Western narrative can inflict in medium and long-term perspective to the Georgia's to Georgia's national interests. The key target is, of course, uh, the NATO membership uh, by portraying it as a threat to Tbilisi's national security and long-term stability that will grant no solution to the ongoing conflict. This is, of course, done in order to portray Russia as the only viable dominant player in the region that can really help Georgia to solve its conflict. Russian propaganda usually has several dimensions and one of the most prominent targets is of course the strategic partnerships that Georgia has built throughout the last two decades with its allies. Well, Nadia, thank you so much. Nicola, this is so unfair, but a a very quick summary of how important it was for the autocephaly, the separation of the Ukrainian church from the Russian Orthodox Church. What did that mean? Did that take away a lever or did it actually make things even more complicated for the weaponization, if you will, of of one's beliefs. Well, of course, I think personally, for instance, for Vladimir Putin or his close circle, it could be a kind of psychological blow because I want to remind that the last time Vladimir Putin came to Kiev, it was in July 2013. It was 1025th anniversary of baptization of Kiev and Rus. So it's quite an important question. But again, uh, Russia, by its aggression against Ukraine, they made the idea of a separate Orthodox Church of Ukraine became more popular. And yes, it was one of the goals in the late uh, Petro Poroshenko term. And luckily, we get assistance from Turkey and indirect even from the US uh, in uh, term of uh, declaring and recognition of uh, Orthodox uh, Church of Ukraine. But again, I think it was more symbolic 
for for Russia it was a, a serious blow for the psychology, but in terms of the leverage, uh, I think it's not as important as a military, economic information. Uh, and so on. So yes, it damaged the idea of this unity of uh, Eastern Slavs through Orthodox Church and so on. But in terms of real leverage, I would say it's not uh, that great. And if we imagine the situation, if Ukrainian Orthodox Church is united without any Russian influence, it's still Russia would have any other more important, more powerful leverage uh, and its hands. So it was kind of more a symbolic blow to Russian psychology than uh, a real reduction of the uh, leverage over Ukraine in terms of influencing its uh, foreign policy orientation or the attitudes of ordinary people. No, that's extremely helpful to understand where it's working, where perhaps it's it's really not as effective. So we've just had a, a robust conversation about Russia's objectives, some of the tools that it uses within the occupied territories, some other additional tools that we're seeing evolve over time. But I'd like to turn the conversation now as we as we wrap up towards you know what the West must do, considering 13 years after the invasion of Georgia. Uh, ongoing events uh, in in Ukraine, uh, what can we do? For me, it's clear we need to keep this on the top of the agenda, step one, which sometimes when we have such dramatic events as the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, a pandemic, climate change, the world is in turmoil, focusing on the Indo-Pacific, it is hard to keep Ukraine and Georgia at the center of our focus. Non-recognition, having to reemphasize that we do not accept what Russia has done. There is continuing pressure to seek uh, to to resolve that. But what else can we do? And Nikola, I want to start with you. Clearly, the Ukrainian-NATO relationship is important. It hasn't met at the highest levels uh, because of policies from the Hungarian government preventing that. But help us understand the importance of the NATO-Ukraine relationship, uh, Ukraine's relationship with the European Union, uh, its own reform efforts. We welcome President Zelensky uh, on September the 1st uh, in, in Washington with a meeting with President Biden set out a very large uh, framing, uh, revitalizing the strategic partnership between the United States and Ukraine. What advice would you give to the Biden administration on how to continue to resist the challenges that we face with Russia's occupation of, of Georgia and Ukraine? First, I want to start with the idea that we are in a long-term competition. So it won't end in a year or two. So we need to to garden the capabilities of such states as Ukraine and Georgia. Well, if you look at the latest edition of National Security Strategy of Ukraine that was adopted one year ago, one of the three pillars we are basing our national security strategy is an engagement. I mean engagement of uh, other partners, entities, countries, in our uh, conflict with uh, Russia because we have this great disbalance that is favor Russia, so we're actively looking for partners and engaging US, CU, uh, NATO, other countries like UK uh, is utmost importance for Ukraine, of course, if we want to uh, prevail in the end, I mean, if we want to return back these territories, if we want Ukraine to preserve its independence and to flourish. Uh, So basically, uh, it's the same idea. We need more engagement. On the other hand, I, I, I want to say that 
Of course, we have these um, different expectations. I mean, Ukraine, of course, want uh, NATO membership right here, right now, uh, or security treaty bilateral with US, but we need to find ways that... Uh, make it possible both for US and Ukraine to pursue its national interests, take into account different interpretation of the of the interests and different assessment of the risk. Because as far as I see, since 2014, one of the pillars of the US approach towards Ukraine, Ukrainian-Russian conflict was, yes, we, we want to help Ukraine. Yes, we do not recognize occupation of Crimea, but we, we do not want to have direct confrontation with Russia as a result of our engagement. So Ukraine need to take it into the account. And if uh, right here, right now, NATO uh, membership is not an agenda, maybe we need to think about some other practical ways how uh, US and NATO can strengthen Ukraine. So again, it's the issue of uh, the shipment of defensive weaponry, increasing the level of assistance, because uh, now... Ukraine have from the US uh, something like 400 million, both uh, through the DOD and Department of State. And uh, a couple of more hundred of dollars uh, for Ukraine, it's very small amount for US, but, but it's a big deal for Ukraine, uh, basically. So that, that's my message and uh, it can get other defensive items we need quite a lot. It's uh, the continuance of uh, this line because I understand there is some limitations in terms of what approach Biden administration is going to take, is going to pursue. So if US is not ready for providing some clear security guarantees, then we want to have uh, additional shipment of defensive weapons that increase the deterrence effect. Because now we need to preserve and to guarantee that these 93% of territories, uh, they, they would be under Ukrainian control and we won't have any additional land grab or um, any additional, uh, any worse care threatening uh, like, like we have this spring. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, if more at stake from the US, more US can demand and ask for from Ukraine uh, in terms of reforming its security and defense sector. Because yes, it, it's true, it's a fact that uh, it's still a long journey for Ukraine to utilize its resources in the best way. So it's a two-way street. On the, on the one hand, increasing assistance and making the case it's not to threaten Russia. It's just to increase uh, defensive capabilities of Ukraine. And that's true. Even with additional weapons, we, we, we don't radically change this balance of power between Ukraine and Russia. So on the one hand, it's more assistance uh, and more presence, basically, through exercises, through port visits, and so on. And on the other hand, it's more efforts uh, from Ukrainian side to reform its security and defense sector, modernization of its uh, equipment, better personal policy, and so on. And in the end, we will strengthen Ukrainian capabilities and Russian, uh, in, in, in some time in the future, they will need to reconsider their approach towards Ukraine and proceed from the fact that military leverage is not as powerful as it was. Nicola, thank you so much. Nadia, what should the West do? 
Um, I would agree with most of the points that uh, Mikola highlighted, but I would also add that it is very important for the Biden administration to have tougher policy with regards to Russia. And the first uh, signals are um, are giving some hope uh, because Biden has stressed that he, he is committed to have a coordinated engagement with the allies, with the EU, with NATO allies when it comes to dealing with Russia and is determined to rebuild ties with the strategic partners. This, I think, was largely missing during the Trump administration. Additionally, it is very important for a Biden administration, for the West, to set some red lines when it comes to the Russian aggression um, against Ukraine, against Georgia. And particularly, I would highlight the borderization process because these attempts by Russia to violate Georgia's sovereignty and territorial integrity have been largely missing from the international agenda. Uh, timing is also very important because I think it's time uh, for the US, U.S. to strengthen its interests in the South Caucasus region. Due to the Nagorno-Karabakh war, the U.S.'s role in the region has been weakened while, the, the, while Russia increased its military presence in the region. This is also due to the lack of interest from the Trump administration to strengthen its posture in the South Caucasus. The, this uh, kind of lack of interest has paved the way to the new and quite dangerous initiatives, I think, such as the creation of uh, a six-country cooperation platform that was put forward by Ankara and envisages Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Russia, Turkey and Iran cooperating within a single framework. Georgia's hypothetical participation in the format, although I think um, it is impossible that Georgia would uh, potentially participate in such format, would directly undermine the US's regional presence and its interests. But I would also agree that it is uh, very crucial, and this is a two-way street indeed, um, because Georgia uh, needs to stay on the right path. Georgia needs to stay uh, committed to pushing a reform-oriented agenda, and we need to implement much-needed reforms, particularly in terms of the rule of law, judicial reforms, and so on, in order to uh, make sure that we are, we are on the right track, uh, especially in light of the tremendous pressures, both uh, internally and externally, that uh, Georgia currently has. That's why I think that the efforts must come from both ways. And uh, the best way to support Georgia would indeed be to push its European and Euro-Atlantic integration. Uh, there is a desire and the wish of the overwhelming majority of the Georgian uh, population. Well, Nadia, thank you so much. I mean, that is a that's a rich list of policy ideas, certainly for the Biden administration, for the European Union, for individual European capitals. I think three things struck me. You both spoke about reform and how important it is for Georgia and Ukraine itself to continue to do that deep, deep, difficult work of, of internal reforms. Uh, that is the best medicine and antidote and antibody against uh, malign influence. Uh, but it's good, good for, for Georgia and Ukraine. It will strengthen you democratically as well as strengthen you from a defensive posture. The Black Sea region has got to be much more important on the transatlantic agenda. Uh, and we need to reconceptualize, I think, that region. And as to Nicola's point, as we increase the defensive capabilities of Georgia and Ukraine. 
Uh, that in itself is a strong message, but in partnership really with NATO. It doesn't mean less NATO, but it means uh, giving uh, both of your countries the means to better defend themselves. But that agenda, quite frankly, is going to be in conflict with the Biden administration's desire for a, a predictable and stable relationship with Russia, uh, because there's, those are all of the items that uh, Russia certainly does not want. So in some ways, that is the great conundrum I think the Biden administration has as it, as it pursues a more robust uh, strategy for Ukraine and Georgia, it will encounter its own uh, contradiction in its relationship with Russia. So we are going to have to leave it there. We'll just have to have more podcasts to keep elevating this important issue. So Nadia, Nicola, thank you so much. Your papers are fantastic. We encourage our listeners uh, to, to read those uh, great, great papers sort of underlying the challenges. And we're so glad you could both be with us today. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Please check the show's notes for links to our guest bios and description of the Understanding the Russian Military Today Executive Education Program. We will have links to Nicola and Nadia's papers uh, ready for you on our website. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on Apple and or leaving us a rating or a review. If you're not an Apple podcast user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to great content. And again, keep spreading the word about Russian roulette. And just one final note. For this particular episode, I would like to thank our funder, the Russia Strategic Initiative, the U.S. European Command in Stuttgart, Germany. It's very important to note that the opinions and arguments and viewpoints and conclusions expressed uh, in this work do not represent those of the Russia Strategic Initiative, U.S. European Command, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Finally, I'd love to just take a moment to thank everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen, including our fabulous producer, program manager, Roxana Gabadumina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening, and thanks for checking out Russian Roulette.